standing for the reading of Scripture this morning, which you'll find in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 9, this morning, verses 14 through 24. Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God. And when he, that is Jesus, came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. And he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. In the life of Christian faith, from Mark chapter 9, there is a short prayer that captures the deepest soul urgency informed more fully by many other passages of Scripture. But you heard it already this morning. I'm sure you uh, recognize it very well. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now we are in chapter 9 of Mark. I want to remind you that we're looking at the New Covenant Christian gospel is the God-ordained means for the transcendent power of the kingdom of God in heaven to be made imminent in the earth. And what does that mean? But that the supernatural power and presence of the triune God personally knowable. That's what the transfiguration was, is a preview of the resurrection glory of Christ returning to his glory, but in the, the wonder of the resurrection to come. And it's revealing to us the being, the, the unique and special person, even Jesus, the Son of God, transfigured as the Christ of God, the transcendent and the eminent divine being who empowers the kingdom of God in heaven on earth, the supernatural power and presence of the triune God personally knowable. Now, in this section, in verses 14 through 29, we're going through, taking it uh, portion by portion. Remember that Jesus with the three disciples, apostles Peter, James, and John, are returning from the mountain after the transfiguration. And so this is after the transfiguration, the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, revealing the transcendent and eminent divine power in the kingdom of God in heaven. And when they come down from the mountain, they confront again the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so the person of who Jesus is, revealing the transcendent and the eminent divine being who empowers the kingdom of God here, present on earth in confrontation 
with the world, the flesh, and the devil, past, present, and future. And I really want to emphasize that because of, you know, after the transfiguration, Jesus comes down and he still has to contend again with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are in conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus has been glorified in resurrection and ascended to heaven where he is for us, and yet we still here are contending. We're fighting the good fight of faith against the world, the flesh, and the devil. This morning, I'm sorry, last week we looked at verses 14 through 16. The world of unbelievers are always arguing over the claims of Jesus to be the Christ of God so that past historical evidences, i.e. the the, uh, transfiguration, the public ministry of Jesus, the resurrection, past historical evidences, all that's contained in the scriptures for us by way of historical witness, present personal witnesses, we witness to the present, the uh, imminent and transcendent, being who empowers the kingdom of God, even Jesus, the Christ. And we give that continual present personal witness as we worship together, as we live by faith, and we hold on to future promised hopes and the warnings. But the world is always disputing these. The world and the flesh and the devil are in conflict with our faith. This morning we turn to verses 17 through 20. Continuing on in uh, this passage, in this earthly life, the flesh is an ever-present reality for Christian believers in three ways. We'll see this reflected in the passage, but also we find this addressed throughout Scripture in our life of faith. So the flesh is an ever-present reality, this side of glory and of resurrection. The... the, the um, Flesh is an ever-present reality in three ways. First, the unregenerate, dead spiritual condition of unbelievers and in sinful opposition to the law of God. So that's what we contend with. The flesh as the unregenerate, dead spiritual condition of unbelievers and in sinful opposition to the law of God. Secondly, as Christians, the remaining corruption of sin's effects in conflict with the regenerated heart and the sanctifying indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that the spirit and the flesh are contrary to one another. We have remaining corruption. doesn't mean that our body's evil. doesn't mean that our physical humanity is evil. But it means that we have that remaining corruption that is still with us. We are not dominated by the sin nature. But we still contend against the flesh in terms of our regenerated heart and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, there is that conflict that's going on with temptation and sin. And we know that's real. And Scripture uh, speaks to us very directly about that. And then the third way that we as Christian believers uh, also uh, are dealing with the flesh as a present reality is that we have creaturely limitations. We are human, like unbelievers. We are human We share a common humanity of flesh and blood as God's image bearers. Now, this episode that we're looking at in Mark chapter 9, after Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, shows Jesus confronting and empowering the new creation of salvation over the flesh. And that's what I really hope that you will listen to and that we'll more deeply appreciate from the study of this scripture this morning. 
that Jesus confronts and Jesus empowers the new creation of salvation. Jesus confronts the flesh and Jesus empowers the new creation of salvation over the flesh. So we begin with verses 17 and 18. Then one of the crowd speaks up when Jesus asked the scribes, what are they disputing and discussing with the disciples? There was this, as we looked at last week, this uh, argumentation going on and this this uh, father had brought his son so distressed and so disturbed and was seeking help. And so when Jesus says, what are you discussing with them? The father speaks up. Then one from the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it, ever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. So in this earthly life, uh, I'm sorry, verses 17 and 18, uh, this distressed father, verses 17 and 18, this distressed father speaks up being exasperated over the useless arguments between Jesus' disciples and the scribes. And so scripture warns us against relying on the flesh. Something was going on between Jesus' disciples and the scribes that interrupted and uh, failed in their ability to help this father. Now, previously, we know that Jesus had given them authority to go out and to witness in his name and the power of the gospel and uh, to do works that he had authorized, works such as this father coming uh, to them and asking. They had done it before. But you see, it wasn't just some kind of uh, independent power that Jesus gave them that they could do at will. And so they were in this disputation with the scribes, and in the midst of this disputation, this father and his distressed child were helpless. And they were helpless to do anything for them. And so Scripture warns us against relying on the flesh, that is, human abilities unaided by God's means. And here are a couple of Scripture passages that that I hope that you will consider and and go back and uh, think and meditate on. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the doubter of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. We are not to trust in the flesh. We are not to think that somehow we go to Scripture and we get some kind of uh, uh, power boost, some kind of energy drink from Scripture, and then we can just do as at our will, uh, tapping into the power of God. No, Scripture tells us that the things that we believe and what we trust in, the promises of God and the Word of God, to the world seems foolish. And it's contrary to the flesh. It's not going to be accepted or appreciated by the world. So we are not to trust in the flesh. We're to trust in God's means through His Spirit. And then again, Paul writes in 1 Timothy, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come 
envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, this scripture passage, I believe, is legitimate in consideration of the context here, particularly in terms of what's going to be coming on in chapter 9. You see, the work of the ministry and the call to serve Christ is not to serve one's own reputation. It's not for personal gain, even though it is often corrupted that way, as Paul writes here and warns about. And so we're not to be uh, drawn into arguments over words and disputes where there is self-promotion, envy over others, wanting to best and outdo others in argumentation, uh, striving and a a reviling rather than appreciating and encouraging one another, uh, uh, trying to discredit and to misrepresent one another with evil suspicions, useless wranglings. When people turn away from God's means in reference to the preaching of the word and the, the power of the word of God that we seek to clearly apply and understand it. And when we fall into these attempts to best one another in these ways, it's in the flesh, it's not in the spirit. And that's what I believe is a part that Jesus is addressing here within his own company of disciples. As I said in, in the on in this context, after we finish with this particular episode of the father and his uh, son, we'll see that this flesh flares up, even among the disciples. So this distressed father's description of his son's affliction is that he is epileptic. Now that's from the parallel passage in Matthew, and the literal term there means moonstruck. Now, um, it's wrongly assumed that all views of mental disorder or of seizures or other diseases that affect the mental um, ability, even in this case with one who is unable to speak and as we've learned is unable to hear, it is falsely assumed that the ancient world attributed that always to evil spirits. The term moonstruck actually uh, was an attempt to, to try to find some kind of, of a physical trigger And it was thought that somehow the draw of the moon in the tides or the the phases of the moon affected these seizures. And of course, they were not as advanced as we are in being able to identify diseases, but still things that are beyond our cure, we can address some of the symptoms, but things that are still beyond human ability to cure. And so this father's description of his son's affliction is that he is epileptic. He has seizures. And he also suffers from Demonic attacks causing him to be mute and deaf as we find out Jesus further identifies in this story. Now what I want to point out to you is that there are two conditions resulting from the flesh. The flesh as sinful human nature. The flesh as fallen human nature. And the flesh as human conditions susceptible to the devil's deception and cruelty. So I see in this passage, in Jesus dealing with this distressed father and his afflicted son, I see that the son has two conditions. And I want to point something out to you. And I want to be very careful about this 
Because I'm not saying this to try to um, uh, pump up my ego or to, to tell you that I'm smarter than everybody else or whatever. What I'm telling you is that in researching this passage and in the sources that I reviewed, I was a little dismayed because no one attempted to address two conditions. There were those on the one hand that said, oh, this is all about demon possession. And the demon manifests itself in mimicking this particular disease or seizure. And then there were others who said, well, uh, in the ancient world, they attribute everything to, to um demons and to the spirits, but really what we have here is what we've come to better know as a condition like epilepsy. And so it's really just a diseased condition. And in my research and review of various sources, and, and I'm talking about good, solid, exegetical, uh, reformed um, uh, teachers, what I was dismayed about is that it seems to me what is obvious here that no one else wanted to acknowledge was that here's a complication and there are two conditions that Jesus is revealing to us. That we have this afflicted boy who is both diseased and demon-possessed. And I don't think you can dispute that, quite honestly. Now, there are some special circumstances to be carefully considered in this case. A close study of the Scripture text in agreement with consistent biblical doctrine is necessary not to cloud judgment with emotionalism or sentimentality, letting our feelings overrule the purpose of this story. I want you to appreciate this story. I want you to appreciate the compassion of Jesus as he deals and disentangles this for us because I believe that we all have loved ones, family loved ones, and friends who we have been touched by this very thing. We have friends and loved ones and family members who suffer with chronic debilitating diseases. We also have friends. Throughout my pastoral ministry, I have many friends who are touched with someone who is suffering psychologically or with mental uh, troubles. It's real. I, I have a very dear friend who served in the pastorate my same generation and age, and he has an afflicted son who is unable to live on his own and take care of himself independently because of his struggles mentally. It's a real condition. It's real painful. And it's, and it's a real heartbreak and care to the point that this father said something that has broken my heart and I'm... I'm I don't think I'll ever forget it as long as my memory serves me. I know I'll be taking care of my son for the rest of my life. But what's going to happen to him when I'm gone? He lives with that every day. I believe we all have friends, loved ones, within the body of Christ who are not only touched with physical debilitating diseases, but those also who struggle with the psychological and the, the mental distresses and diseases. It's real. And that's why I'm saying when we come to this passage, I want us to see that Jesus is dealing with the, the combination of things. He's dealing with two things. The boy's suffering an affliction of disease and, in this case, demonic um, cruelty. Taking advantage and susceptible 
in, in God's providence to this boy. God allowed this boy to be cruelly treated by demons, even in his afflicted condition. And we mustn't have our judgment clouded by emotionalism or sentimentality. As I said earlier, and as we'll mark out here, this boy is also a son of Adam. He's also a descendant of Adam. This afflicted boy is born into a world of sin. This afflicted boy is also born with a sin nature. This afflicted boy also needs soul salvation. Jesus does that. That's what we're going to see in this passage. Something to rejoice and encourage our hearts. But this is where we have to be careful not to let our judgment be clouded with sentimentality and emotionalism. You may ask me, is every so afflicted child born with Down syndrome, born with uh, debilitating diseases, uh, is every mentally distressed person, do they receive the salvation of God? And I'm going to tell you God's going to do what's right. That's all I can tell you. God will do what's right. It's not what I think is right. It's not what you think is right. It's who God is and what God will deal with. But here we have a wonderful passage of Scripture holding out hope for us and those thus distressed and afflicted. They are not excluded from God's salvation through Christ. So Jesus came preaching the new covenant gospel of salvation, validated by his public works of miracles, healings, and his authority over demons. We've seen that thus far in the gospel of Mark. And like other stories recorded earlier in Mark's gospel, there are those who bring their loved ones to Jesus, who are afflicted and who are hurt or diseased or demon-possessed. And so this father brings his afflicted and incapacitated son to find Jesus for help. Let me repeat that. This father brings his afflicted and incapacitated son to find help from Jesus. Now, reasoning from the account, I want to suggest something to you. This father may have been a Christian believer by previous witness about Jesus. He's, he comes, uh, another uh, parallel passage tells us that he kneels. He calls Jesus Lord. He brings his son to help uh, for help and deliverance to Jesus. And so, it's a possibility. I, I can't say dogmatically or for certain that this father came already as a Christian believer. But I believe in the course of the story and at the end of the story, I believe he is a Christian believer. Now this is again something that I want to point out to you. Don't be unbelieving. Don't be of little faith. Many people believed unto salvation in Jesus who heard him preach, who saw his mighty works. The crowds who came, they didn't all turn against him. Many, many, many believed and were saved even in the days of Jesus. You think it was just the apostles who believed? There was a big company of disciples. We know there were divisions. We, were no, we know there were those who turned against him. We know there were those who cried out for his crucifixion. But what we don't, I think, balance out and recognize is when Scripture tells us that many believed on his name. They were kept by the power of God unto salvation. Don't be doubting. We're tempted to doubt that today. Where is the Christian church? Where is the witness of Christ? Where are Christian believers? I'm telling you, there are many who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. 
There are many Christians around the world, whether you can see them or, or whether I can see them, they are kept by the power of God into salvation. There are many. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. We don't need to count heads. We don't need to worry about the numbers. We need to trust the Word of God. And so, it's very possible that this father bringing his son to Jesus, that this father was already a Christian believer trusting in the Lord. Now, it must be acknowledged that his son, although afflicted and with diminished human abilities, also needed soul salvation. He needed to be regenerated by saving faith. That's, that's where I want us to be careful not to let our judgment become clouded. Even though this son, and, and the father says from childhood, he has been afflicted. He is suffering with disease, and now he's suffering with demon possession. I don't know how to explain all that to you, other than Scripture reveals it to us. And what I believe is that uh, at the time of the, Jesus' public ministry, that God loosened the leash on the devil and the demons so that there was an upsurge in demonic power and presence so that Jesus might manifest, as John says, his power over them to destroy them. Jesus was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. And so here's what we have going on as recorded for us, as documented for us, of the record of God's ancient wonders. Jesus destroys the works of the devil. And so here is this boy from childhood afflicted with disease and cruelly assaulted and susceptible to demonic possession. And yet this child, even in this condition, is still in need of soul salvation. His heart must be regenerated. He is a sinner. That's hard to swallow, isn't it? That a child and the cruelty of a child being thus afflicted and treated this way. And people want to blame God for it. The blame is not God's. The blame is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this child, this boy, even if he's 13 to 30, whatever his age might be, he is a sinner by birth, by nature, and by accountability. I know that's difficult for us sometimes, but we need to see it as such, and we need to see Jesus' salvation, that those thus afflicted are not beyond Jesus' salvation. So that's what I'm hoping you will really take from this this morning. So this is the demonstration of Jesus' saving power over the flesh, even when complicated by disease and demon possession. What should not be missed is that the boy's disabling condition in the weakness of the flesh was an occasion for the demon's cruelty. Don't blame God for this. It's the demon who is cruelly treating him. But note this, the demons do not have the power of death. The father testifies that many times the demons had tried to destroy him, throwing him in the fire, throwing him in the, in the water. But the demons do not have the power of death. I want to underscore that repeatedly as we expound and see Jesus' encounter with the devil and the demons. The demons do not have the power of death. 
But Jesus' power over death is dramatically contrasted in this story as the power of God unto salvation. And you're going to see that as we go on through the story. We won't get to it this week. But you'll see that Jesus' power over death, in the case with this young boy, this young man, he says, the father says from childhood he's been afflicted this way. Now he's a boy. And as I told you, that could be age anything from 13 to 30. But that Jesus' power over death is dramatically contrasted in this story as the power of God unto salvation. So that brings us to verse 19. The father answered him, and, or, or, I'm sorry, Jesus answered him and said, when he says that the, the disciples couldn't do anything to help him, Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, and uh, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. So the father's report that Jesus' disciples could not relieve the father's distress or the boy's sufferings revealed Jesus himself pronouncing a faith indictment confronting faithless gospel witness as fruitless. It's short-sighted and it's short-lived. Faithless gospel witness. What does that mean when Jesus says here, faithless generation, unbelieving? How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Well, faithless gospel witness is identified by false gospel faith claims. I want you to be careful about this subtle distinction. We're talking about a faithless gospel. All right, it is a false gospel with false faith claims. See, false gospels claim that you've got to believe. You've got to believe the false things that are said. So this is how the flesh operates. The flesh is all about the false gospel of works. And there are those who turn this passage upside down and say that the Father has got to work up enough faith, that the disciples didn't work up enough faith. It's not about works. It's not about human ability. Works intellect, works personality, works personal experiences, works self-help, works self-promotion, works self-righteousness. It all ends in the same thing. The false claim for works salvation. So there are those who turn this passage upside down and basically are saying that the father's got to save himself and this afflicted demon-possessed boy has got to save himself. And of course, that just destroys the whole purpose and point of the story that only Jesus can save us. Even those who are so afflicted by disease, or in this case, even the added complication of demon possession. So Jesus is shaming his own disciples and with them, Christian believers, who compromise the purity of the new covenant Christian gospel by accommodations to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're all at risk here in terms of this, tem uh, this temptation. We're all at risk to try to accommodate the world, the flesh, and the devil and to lessen the purity and the power and the claims of the gospel. What is demonstrated to us here in the transcendent and the imminent personal being who empowers the kingdom of God here on earth, and that is Jesus. So the world's condition as a groaning creation, broken down and decaying, and the realm of collective rebellion against God is not saved, it's not regenerated by human science. You're going to accommodate with the, uh, the world in terms of human science and ability that we've got to save our world? 
There are constantly these attempts. They come under any number of, of uh, ruses, like global warming or whatever else, whatever fad comes next, with the claim that human science must save the world. Now, I want to be careful about this, that Christian stewardship of the earth is a legitimate counterpart. I believe we should be good stewards. I don't want a poisoned world. I don't want you know poisoned food. But we need to follow Scripture and recognize the benefit and the, the direction that Scripture gives us on these things and not be fooled and accommodating the world. And I say this to our young people particularly. You're, you're particularly susceptible to this. You are being force-fed these attempts of human science to save the world and the claims that you've got to be a part of that. And you need to be wise. We all must be wise about it. The human world cannot be saved by science. We're also challenged that we not accommodate in a, in a false faith and a false gospel the flesh. The flesh, again, is identified in Christian theology. It has no spiritual power in itself over death by intellect, psychology, or living being. We, we do not accommodate the flesh. The flesh cannot find the way to eternal life. The flesh cannot preserve itself in immortality by intellectual means. Even uh, artificial intelligence is not going to be, be able to bring immortality. When it comes to issues of psychology, fixing the brain and the reality of the challenge of not just physical disease but mental disease, the flesh can't heal itself. And certainly in terms of living being, we are not independent living beings. We are dependent. We are creatures. We will always be creatures. But there's an attempt in the flesh to try to throw off and to rebel against the Creator and our accountability to Him and our recognition of Him and to claim some kind of independence and to, in the flesh, attempt to achieve that to be self-existing living being. And that will never happen. This does not mean that Christianity is anti-intellectual. It does not mean that Christianity denies the psychological realm or that Christianity rejects all medical life-preserving measures. We have to find the balance and we seek to find what is in agreement with God's Word in these matters. And then we must be vigilant not to accommodate with the devil and the demons in compromising the power of the gospel. You see, the devil and the demons' corrupting presence operate by counterfeit deceptions. We know in many ways. But confusing the true gospel with self-help perfectionism or institutional salvation from organization or race, the, the pure blood claims... Those have been the devil's tactics for generations. Why does he use them? Because they keep ensnaring people. Because they work. And so this is a false faith and a false gospel. Are we well guarded against it? Are we fortified? Do we take the means of God, even the descriptions that are given of us of being armored up, 
with a shield of faith and the, the, the sword of the word. And the other descriptions that Paul gives in terms of the helmet and the breastplate and the, the uh, shin guards and the feet, you know, of salvation and of faith and of um, uh, preparation for the gospel, to go into to the battle with the, with the power of the gospel, feet shod with the gospel of peace. Are we suited up? Are we prepared? Are we committed to the fight? Because we are in conflict with the devil and the false faith in false gospels. So the world, the flesh, and the devil represent a counterfeit trinity where the creation is substituted in worship in the place of the Creator, God the Father. The flesh is promoted as self-sufficiently God-finding. Find God your own way. Find Him your own self. Become God yourself. Identify. Uh, Don't just leave it at identifying by gender. Go ahead and identify as God. You shall be as gods, determining good and evil for yourself. That's what the flesh says. And this is in the place of the incarnate God-man who came seeking to save the lost. You can't save yourself. The flesh cannot save itself. And the devil spins his deceiving powers into an imposter Holy Spirit, attempting to captivate the darkened human conscience by his dark arts. How do we dispel the dark arts of the devil and the demons in this spiritual conflict? Only by the light of God. Called into likeness out of darkness. We're to walk in the light as he is in the light. There is no darkness in him at all. So this is what we are to be warned about. This is what Jesus is contending with. This is why Jesus is decrying faithless generation of those who seek to accommodate the world, the flesh, and the devil because they're of little faith rather than the bright shining truth of God, of the works from ancient times that God has done, the record of them. We're looking at a record from ancient times of the power of God, the transcendent God made imminent in His transcendent, imminent being who empowers the kingdom of God on earth, and that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His previewed glory at the, at the transfiguration When he comes down from the mountain, he confronts again the world, the flesh, and the devil to tell us that we are always, this side of glory, going to be confronting the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are in a war. Jesus is directing us in that warfare as he does here. He calls us to faith. So in verse 20, When they brought the boy to Jesus, Jesus said, bring him to me. When they brought him to him, and when the boy saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, the evil spirit, the demon, and he fell down on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So in the immediate presence of Jesus, the boy became a battlefield as a microcosm of the New Covenant Christian Gospels confrontation with the world, the flesh, and the devil. What happened with this boy being brought to Jesus is a demonstration on a small world of the big world in which we are living out our faith day in and day out in confrontation with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, I want you to note that the boy's diseased affliction as a weakness of the flesh, which the demon 
cruelly takes advantage of in an attempt to to defy Jesus as the Christ of God. So when they brought this boy into Jesus' immediate presence, the demon displays all of his powers to try to destroy the boy and to try and defy Jesus as the Christ of God. And so we need to understand that as Christian believers, we are in a spiritual war zone. Do you believe that? Do you recognize that? In this story about this distressed father and his afflicted son and Jesus' um, rebuke to his disciples, do you recognize that we are in a war zone? But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. We're not to accommodate the world, the flesh, and the devil in unbelief and in false belief. We're to trust the word of God and the means of God. There are many scripture passages that speak directly about spiritual warfare. You mustn't forget them. We're given instructions and warnings not to be fooled into accommodating the mind and the methods of the flesh. Now, there's more to come in this passage. I hope you'll find it compelling. But as we look further on next time in verses 21 through 27, the the devil, the demons are real. They're created in fallen spirit beings. They have been defeated by the power of Jesus, the Christ of God, in pledge of the resurrection, as revealed in this confrontation as Jesus comes down from the mount of transfiguration, this confrontation with the demon trying to destroy this boy, Jesus is able. I I think this is going to be hopefully encouraging to us. Jesus is able to distinguish between and to deliver and restore body, soul, and spirit. See, there's more to come in this story of what Jesus does for this boy and his father. Jesus is able to distinguish between. and Jesus is able to deliver and to restore body, soul, and spirit. And then in verses 28 and 29, we'll come to the conclusion of this episode, the outcome of Jesus bringing salvation through the encounter with the world, the flesh, and the devil in the case of this epileptic and demon-possessed boy further reveals and defines the meaning of faith in connection with the God-ordained means for the transcendent power of the kingdom of God in heaven to be made imminent in the earth. The supernatural power and presence of the triune God, personally knowable. And that's going to address some questions that we have about, well, what do we do with people who are afflicted this way? What do we do with those who are so incapacitated? We trust God and His means. His ways are not our ways. And we hold on to the promise, that future, that it will will not always be so. And that renewing as of the eagles, when there is a promised place that there is no more disease, there is no more sin's corruption, there is no more effect of the fall, there is no more confusion of mind, there is no more death to body. Every tear will be wiped away. You see, that's what we hold on to in the promise of a future hope that Jesus has overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil.
And that is the good news that is fulfilled in the new covenant gospel of salvation. So we'll continue on in the coming weeks uh, here in Mark chapter 9. And then, of course, uh, look forward to going on into the balance of uh, the gospel of Mark.